Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AABMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AABMC. Happy Pride, everybody. It's Pride Month 2022. Happy Pride. On today's episode, we are talking well-being and the LGBTQIA plus veterinary professionals. So now I know that, um, you know, well-being continues to be a major concern within the veterinary profession. But when we look at groups within the profession with marginalized identities, we don't often have kind of that um, disaggregated data um, to really kind of see what's going on. And when we do have some of that data, sometimes we don't disaggregate it. Um, and so we don't always have a great idea of um, how these uh, issues around well-being are being experienced by folks with marginalized identities, such as our queer community. Um, what we do know is that the experience can be different, often is different, and especially when marginalized identities come into play and kind of are layered, meaning um, there are some intersectional issues. We know that within um, the queer community, of course, everyone is represented in terms of race and age and all of these types of things. But when we start seeing layers, um, we see some really kind of wacky things that are not good. Um, so let's drop off all of that, what I just said, into the professional environment. And I have a little bit of data on some of the experiences of queer folks in the work environment. So this data is from the Williams Institute, um, a really great group of folks out in Southern California that really kind of do a lot of wonderful study around uh, LGBT issues. So last year, 10% of queer employees experienced workplace discrimination, but nearly half of all queer folks report having had some type of unfair treatment in the work environment at some point in their whole career. 57% of folks last year reported poor treatment associated with religious beliefs of their colleagues. Uh, nearly 40% re uh, reported experiencing harassment in the workplace. Nearly 50% um, of, of queer folks in the workplace are not out to their immediate supervisor. Um, one in three last year left a job because of poor treatment. So when we talk a lot about um, issues around mental health and well-being and the profession, we tend to really kind of emphasize and spend a lot more time talking about, you know, um, individual um, uh, mental health and kind of thinking about how do we support that aspect of, um, you know, this at the systemic level, like how do we kind of create um, better environments. But the reality is that sometimes it's just the work environment itself is toxic and that this isn't necessarily, um, you know, that the, the mental health issue isn't um, necessarily this kind of organic thing. It's being in a toxic work environment or learning environment that really is the problem. So today, my guests and I are going to dive into some of the 
research that does exist in veterinary medicine focusing on the well-being of our queer colleagues. So joining me today are my guests, Drs. Dane Whitaker and Tracy Witt joining the show. Hello, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to be on the show. And so before we dive into the juicy questions, I'd like my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So Tracy, we're going to start with you this time. Hi. Um, yes, I am a licensed clinical psychologist, but my full-time gig is as a professor in the clinical psychology program in the Department of Psych Sciences at Auburn University. Um, I am also the director of the Suicidal Behavior and Psychopathology Lab there, so I oversee a team of graduate students and undergraduate students, and that's really my main area of research interest is understanding and preventing suicide, and and we can get into some of my um, work related to the VET um, profession, which that has become, you know, a, a fairly large chunk of, of what I've been doing over the past decade. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, Anglo white woman. Um, and I recognize the limitations of my own experience and I'm just trying to be humble in these conversations. And I, um, Although, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about um, the, the work that my group has done looking at the LGBTQ plus folks in the vet profession, I wouldn't put myself out there as necessarily an expert on LGBTQ plus folks experience in general. So I just want to acknowledge that. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Also, shouting out myself as uh, certainly woman of color, but a cisgender straight woman as well. Uh Dane, care to tell us about yourself? <laughs> sure. <clears throat> so my name is Dr. Dane Whitaker. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. I've been doing a couple of presentations today, but uh, I am the LGBTQ plus vet group. Um, and we are providing education and advocacy for folks across the vet profession uh, that identify as LGBTQ+, as well as allies. And I identify first as a transgender man and secondly as a transgender veterinarian. So it's really um, having these kinds of conversations and talking about these topics in our profession is so important. So really grateful to have the opportunity to be here today doing this. Um, Professionally, I wear several different hats. Uh, I practice as a small animal relief veterinarian in the San Francisco and Sacramento areas in California. Uh, I'm also a marine mammal uh, rehab vet. So I work um, in Sausalito at the Marine Mammal Center providing relief work for them as well. Uh, so I do do lots of different things professionally, but you know, in my spare time, I like to... Um, to really work to help provide um, insight into what it's like to be LGBTQ plus in vet med and just really help to work, make this profession more diverse, equitable, and inclusive because, uh, you know, I think that this is such an important um, part of, of what we do, certainly at Pride BMC. And, and I'm, I'm really excited to have this opportunity to be here on the podcast today because the work that 
that Lisa's doing with this has just really been phenomenal. So appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You and the group have been a joy to work with over the years. I am delighted um, to be able to bring uh, visibility, uh, be in a position to bring visibility to these topics. So let us dive on in. So Tracy, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the uh, research that is uh, (laughs) kind of dominating a bit of your portfolio the last few years? Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'm happy to talk about any of my vet vet med relevant research. I um, really got started uh, studying suicide and mental illness in veterinarians right when I began my position at Auburn in 2010. Um, at that time, I was really interested in trying to understand the elevated rate of suicide in the vet population. And I I published a paper back in 2013. And I wasn't sure or I I never could have foreseen that I would have continued in this line of research. Um, But the what I've noticed over the years is just how um, passionate so many veterinarians and vet students and, and other vet professionals are about wellness. And so each time I've done or I've written a paper or completed a project, I've gotten connected with more folks. And um, I, I honestly, I never have this level of excitement or enthusiasm about my research in, in other populations. It's, it's really um, a great joy to, to work and, and align with, with this profession in general. Um, so most of my papers in this area are focused on suicide and general wellness. Now, how I got connected to with Pride VMC was um, I attended a AVMA wellness roundtable, I think in 2016. And I was approached by a member of um, LGVMA, which is what the organization was at the time. And, um, and that, that, person pointed out that we essentially had no research looking at LGBTQ plus folks in the vet profession. And I felt a real personal responsibility for that because I had co-authored the 2015 net at all paper. That was, you know, it was a huge sample. It was 12,000 veterinarians and I kick myself every day. And we were just talking about this before the podcast. We neglected to measure gender identity and sexual orientation in that paper. So it was an enormous missed opportunity given the size of the sample, we would have really been able to answer some of these questions with those data. So I really felt um, ashamed of, of that, that error on our part and wanted to work with um, Pride BMC to rectify that in some way. So um, we worked together to to put together a survey and and recruit um, participants, not just um, uh, practicing veterinarians, but also s- students. So we worked with Broad Spectrum, which now I think they are um, a, a subset of Pride VMC, if if I'm correct, correct in that, um, as well as um, the British LGBTQ um, vet organization. Um, and so we were able to recruit a sample of almost 450 LGBTQ plus identified vet professionals and students and, um, and really dig into climate experiences as well as 
collecting a lot of the same variables that we had from our 2015 JABMA papers that we could do some comparisons, at least within um, our, you know, with the newer data set. Um, I'm happy to, to talk about any of, of those findings. And I also want to mention that um, with my um, my graduate students, as well as some other folks from um, from Pride BMC, we are in the process of um, revising a paper. We have a revise and resubmit on a qualitative analysis from that same data set. Um, yes, I see Lisa getting excited. I know, I know you you are a fan of qualitative research, and I'm I'm increasingly becoming enamored with it. Um, so we've also got some interesting data looking at not just, you know, numerically, how often are people experiencing suicide ideation, depression, but we have narrative descriptions of the difficulties that people have experienced and, and how those were resolved. Um, and so I, it's, a, it's a lot richer data than what we have pre published so far. Yeah, yeah. Qualitative data, um, you know, I uh, my background is in both quant and qual. I, I don't get to do as much qual because it's just, you know, staff takes forever. <laughs> and it takes forever. It is very, very labor intensive, but it is very rich because then you get the stories, right? And so, you know, some of the things that that I have learned along the way. There was a study that some colleagues and I did in, in 2012, really kind of looking at the experience, kind of the experience of, of queer students, um, veterinary students, kind of, you know, we had two big questions, right? Describe the climate at your institution with respect to, you know, issues around um, sexual orientation. And then how, what is your lived experience in that environment? Right. And, um, you know, can't wait to hear about your research because we had 40 percent of our respondents were basically straight cis people who were like, yeah, we think you should have asked us. And it was like, OK, but <laughs> how much <laughs> how much privilege does it take for you to kind of <laughs> participate in a study, a lengthy study that doesn't even apply to you? But OK, cool. You know, it, it was just it, we learned a lot. Right. But we also learned a lot about. Um, what those environments were like, but also what environments were the most dangerous, right? And ironically, a lot of folks might think that it was, you know, the the ones that were full of hate speech and, you know, ah, you know, just very um, horrible, what I call the chilly or cold environments were the most dangerous. Actually, they weren't. The, the most dangerous were what I call the lukewarm. Because on any given day, folks are not really sure what they're walking into, right? If you know that it's a hostile environment, it sucks, but you know, and, and you kind of put on that armor and you go do what you have to do versus, okay, is it safe? Is it not safe kind of um, situation? And so um, I look back on some of that now that we have so much more um, knowledge around these issues and with the work that you've done and certainly others kind of wow, that kind of stepping into either of those two environments has got to have, you know, a mental toll that is overwhelming and potentially impacts performance, um, but also just quality of life, right? That's just that well-being. And it's just really uh, awful. <laughs> 
is an understatement, right? So tell me a, a bit about what some of those big findings are and some of the more recent research that um, has come out of this wonderful partnership. Yeah, so I would say, um, so I'll, I'll focus first on our quantitative paper, if that's okay. Um, and I would say, there was some good news that we saw. So I always like to at least <laughs> acknowledge where things look okay. Um, we we saw that, you know, most people in our sample reported that they felt comfortable bringing um, their partners to social events. Most people, and this was a bit surprising to me, but, but may not be surprising to y'all. Um, the vast majority reported that they knew at least one other LGBTQ plus person, either in their workplace or in their, their school environment. Um, and when we asked, you know, just on a, you know, I think it was a five point scale, how supportive they felt their um, school or workplace was of LGBTQ plus folks, most people reported that it was either supportive or very supportive. So we're happy to see that. Um then, you know, in terms of the not so good news, uh, we we found, unfortunately, um, and this maps on to what we know um, in the broader population, that um, our sample of LGBTQ plus that professionals were more likely to have experienced suicide ideation and suicide attempts um, compared with our predominantly heterosexual cisgender sample that we described in our 2015 paper of veterinarians. And, you know, it's, it's worth emphasizing again that in that paper, we found that veterinarians had higher rates of suicide ideation than the general population. So we're talking about, you know, some layers yeah. um, of risk in there. Um, and, you know, I've been talking about LGBTQ plus folks as a monolith, but as, as we all know, there, there are lots of different experiences within there. And, and we found that the trans and non-binary individuals in our sample um, tended to, to fare worse in general in terms of mental health symptoms. Um, so they had they were more likely to experience negative mental health symptoms. Um, there were fewer um, resources that were targeting trans non-binary folks in their school or work environment. They were also much less likely to be out to um, anyone about their gender identity in their school or work. And, and I'm talking about in comparison to um, cisgender, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual individuals in our sample. Um, and um, the the last thing I'll kind of throw out, and I, I definitely don't want to just, I'm a professor, so I just, I, when I get going, I can just kind of talk, I can fill an hour, um, but I don't want to do that. Um, we found that, you know, in our overall sample, a little over a third reported that they experienced difficulties related to their identities, either at work or school. Um, and within that, a larger chunk of our professionals, so our, our, our working um, individuals, so it was about 45% of them reported having experienced difficulties compared to 25% of students. Um, and and those different, so 
you know, in this in this paper, it was just a yes or no. Have you experienced difficulties related to your your identities? Um, and those difficulties were related to other negative outcomes like emotional labor, which is relevant to what Lisa was talking about. Um, job dissatisfaction for the working individuals and emotional exhaustion. Um, so I'll I'll pause talking there to, to let y'all jump in with thoughts and and questions and stuff. Oh, that's a lot. So Jane, what was the <laughs> So, so the study goes on, um, and, and Tracy says, Ooh, this looks bad. <laughs> what does that? I'm assuming that there's probably some presentation that kind of to, to right. the, you know, pride community. So what was the reaction? Like, yeah, this tracks or, Ooh, it's worse than we thought. You know, I, I think it just sort of adds proof to the pudding, right? It's it's like, okay, well, yes, from, from an individual standpoint, these are things that many of us have been experiencing in the community, you know, since time began, right? And I think having the data to show this, to say this is actually happening, and to also emphasize, you know, as... Tracy was saying these different intersections of marginalization and how that just layers it on that. Okay. If you're identified as LGBTQ plus, you know, and you're non-binary, you're trans and you, you have an even harder time. Plus the fact that, you know, now you're in vet school or you're going out into the profession, you know, it just really solidified the idea that, that these folks are going to need support. And I think, the biggest thing for us as an organization from Pride BMC standpoint is to say, okay, yeah, we have this, this data now that's proving this. This is the work that we need to do to make sure that we can build a community of organizations and practices or schools or whatever it is across the profession that is prepared to support these folks. And, you know, I think the veterinary profession as a whole has been really keyed into the fact that we do have mental health issues and there are lots of, you know, problems with veterinarians committing suicide and, and having poor mental health as a result of, you know, for whatever reason, potentially as a result of our profession. So I think really drilling down on the fact that we've got an added layer of difficulty to deal with in the fact that, you know, we're identified as LGBTQ plus really kind of motivated the Pride BMC community to, to get to work on doing this. And, you know, we're really emphasizing, we've come out with the Gender Identity Bill of Rights, which is a, a really amazing piece of work that was put forward by many of our Pride BMC community members who really wanted to just start out by outlining the basic human rights for gender nonconforming folks within the profession and just kind of start there. So the research really kind of gave us additional motivation to say, all right, this is the platform that we're standing on. And this is, you know, showing why it's so important for us to do the work that we do. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for that. Um, yeah. I mean, these are, these are really big issues. What I found really interesting in, in what Tracy said is that there's, there's also a difference between, you know, kind of when students are, when we're talking about students, they're still having not always the best time, but they're still in an environment where maybe there's more support. There's, there's a little bit more structure. There's, you know, um, these things. And so it, 
going from that environment <laughs> to, to work, you know, is, is a major life change anyway that requires some adjustment. Um, you know, how, can we talk a little bit about kind of the, the difference between the ways in which um, maybe some of this data show um, uh, how the workplace um, versus institutional climate really impact well-being? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you you raised the point about the the different experiences of students and professionals, and and I also want to acknowledge, you know, a limitation of our data is that we didn't. And if I were to do it again, I would probably do it a little bit differently. We didn't ask when these situations were occurring. So some of our professionals, they've been working for decades, and so they're describing things that happened a while ago. Our students have you know, maybe just one year um, within the, the, you know, that profession. So that may be some of the reason that they're not reporting as many incidents um, is the time span and also a cohort effect because things need to improve a lot more, but they are better than they were, you know, 20 years ago or so. Um, But in terms of, you know, what is the impact of the immediate environment on, on, on mental health? Um, we found, we really found that like that subjective feeling of supportiveness in the environment was most robustly associated with, with our mental health outcomes. Um, so like, and and I would include within their, their rating of how supportive the environment was, as well as, you know, how often are you hearing transphobic or homophobic language in the, in the workplace or at school, um, that was much more associated with, with basically everything, like how distressed you feel, how satisfied you were at, at work, how emotionally exhausted you are. Things like, um, you know, are there other LGBTQ plus folks who work with you? That wasn't really associated with much. Um, and the number, like, so we asked about a bunch of different types of policies and resources and whether they were present and sheer number of, of policies and resources wasn't really associated with, um, or it was associated with some, but not all of the outcomes. So the take home that we had, which I think is consistent with the broader literature in the workplace is um, the impact on climate is that um, you know, formal policies can be helpful, but they're not everything. And you really need a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Um, and so, you know, the good news is that for, for people who are tuning in and listening to this, <clears throat> if you, um, there's a lot of power in an environment um, to be a positive um, agent of change, even if the environment itself is hostile or kind of ambivalent toward LGBTQ plus folks, you can be the person who who um, makes some positive change and that can have a tangible impact on others. Um, but also like if you are a leader in one of these settings, you could put the best policies out there in the world, but you can have some folks really undermine the culture that you're trying to build. So. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert in, you know, in the, there are um, industrial organizational psychologists out there that have, you know, lots of specific expertise in how to build that. But that was just something that we saw in our data. Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, so so you know, it, it, this is 
you can have policies. And certainly I always am advocate, strongly advocate for, um, you know, uh, companies, clinics, wherever, you know, employers should have non-discrimination policies, um, you know, making sure your, your HR approach fund- is fundamentally inclusive. But, you know, uh, problematic people are going to be problematic. <laughs> I mean, that's just, and, you know, and, and I think that, that anyone who is a natural contrarian, like myself, look at the rules and we go, we drive right up to the line <laughs> to figure out like, how can we continue to be authentic? I hopefully I'm not a trash person, but I just have issues with boundaries. So like, but you know, these, these things are uh, rules and policies are great, but you know, it sounds like in the words of Rihanna, this is the time for allies to pull up. Allies in the workplace have to pull up. Dane? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. I mean, that just from my own experience, um, you know, I went through gender transition in the midst of my career um, on the job and I didn't have any guidebooks. There were no HR policies. There was nothing that told me how to do it. You know, I didn't have any resources. I mean, there are resources out there, but I didn't know what they were. So I really had no idea how it was going to go. And because of the climate in the practice where I was fortunate to be in the San Francisco Bay Area in a climate that was supportive, I had, you know, a very successful time during my transition that did not result in my career being jeopardized. And as a result, not only did it make me a better person, person because I was able to step into my authenticity and live my authentic self, but it made me a better veterinarian because I was able to walk into an exam room every day, knowing that I was my authentic self and that I didn't have this added layer of stress with, you know, is this client going to accept me? Are they going to think that I'm weird? Are they going to trust me? Are they going to let me treat their pet? So all those layers of stress that we deal with as veterinarians, then layered on top of that, the stress that I'm dealing with as a trans-identified person, that all went away in part, a large part, because of the climate of the practice that I was in when I transitioned. So it really is so important to, you know, yes, have the policies in place so that these people are doing what they're supposed to be doing to be you know, to support us, but also to have those allies in that climate, creating a culture that is inclusive and supportive. So, I I mean, I can't even tell you how important that is. Yeah, yeah. It it makes me, uh, so Tracy, can you describe a little bit for folks that might be new to the terminology or even the concept, um, that emotional burden, that, that emotional and kind of cognitive burden associated with, you know, discrimination and marginalization? Yeah. So, um, and there, we, we talk about emotional exhaustion and emotional labor a lot in general for any high powered profession, like, you know, like the, the veterinary field. Um, and, and what we're talking about is that, that feeling of being kind of worn down by the end of the day, by, by the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, 
emotional labor is something that that any veterinarian is doing. Well, we're piling on top of that these issues of, as um, I think you were both talking about earlier, the question of, can I be out here? Can I be authentic? What are they thinking of me? Um, am I am I physically safe? Am I is my job safe? Um, is this client like because since it's a public facing profession, then you you've got the the general public that you're dealing with, and sometimes you're dealing with them on their very worst day because their their pet is really sick and they can't afford to um, to um, you know pay for the medical care that that the pet needs. Um, so all of those things are. Um, can then wear on the individual and, and are associated with depression and, and can be associated with substance use and, and even suicidality. Yeah. 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 I was just listening to another um, um, folks that know me personally know I'm a po- podcast junkie and we were talking about kind of the co- concept of weathering. Right. And that this, mm-hmm. idea that, you know, weathering is kind of um, weathering as a result of marginalization, discrimination really is kind of at the root of a lot of health disparities. Right. It's not just the the behavioral piece um, of this person kind of being there, but it's just this cumulative, (laughs) like, you know, this cumulative thing of me being in the storm or Dane being in the storm. Yes, you weather it, (laughs) but some shingles are gone. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. And that, that impacts, yeah, your physical and your, your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. So, how should employers, as well as the colleges, um, and certainly other environments where where um, you know professionals will land, um, you know, Dane, what is the hope um, for Pride VMC that all of these folks will you know and locations will respond to so, to these findings? Yeah, it's it's very much you know. I think getting um, getting the word out and publicizing it, being vocal about it, you know, that's kind of why I'm losing my voice today because I've been talking all day about this stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, what we're doing as an organization is really trying to raise awareness around these issues. And one of the big initiatives that we've come up with, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is this Gender Identity Bill of Rights. And not only writing it and publicizing it, but asking organizations to sign on to it in support. And, you know, when we first started talking about this, I was kind of like, well, I don't really, I mean, how important is, is actually signing it? And then I realized that, that that actually can be a way to just take that extra step of, of adding support to it. So I think institutions and organizations can just by doing a simple act such as signing on to support the gender identity bill of rights can be a way of helping to create that inclusive culture to say you know when let's say um some vet student is trying to decide where they want to go to vet school and they're not sure where they're going to be safe and they're going down the list and they see on the veterinary school's website that they support the Gender Identity Bill of Rights, and they signed on as, as a signatory, that can be a sign that this is a supportive environment. So that that's certainly one step. I mean, I think obviously there's a lot more that goes into that. Um, you know, having this basis of research and knowing that these issues exist 
um, can really form an impetus of is kind of like kind of like an accountability, right? Saying, okay, well, you know about we know that that this is hard fast data. Now it's really time to do something about it. And I think that 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 is certainly one of the things that that can hopefully come out of this research is just being able to take the next step, not only supporting initiatives that Pride BMC is putting forward, but also um, helping to helping these organizations create the policies that then sort of that top down piece that can come into to supporting the community. Great. Yeah, I think that we talked about uh, the Gender Identity Bill of Rights in a previous episode. I can't tell off the top of my head. It might be episode 75. If it's not episode 75, it is episode 91. We will check that and, and drop a link in the, uh, in the show notes um, to talk about that. And just as a, a, a point of clarity, AABMC has not signed on just because we typically don't sign on to that type of thing, but we are incredibly supportive, which is why we do shows like this um, and uh, certainly some other activities. So uh, I do not want folks saying, thinking that just because our name is not on that document, then we're not supportive. We're very, very supportive. So didn't mean to put you on the spot there, It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Um, So, you know, Tracy, in kind of thinking about the body of of literature, which I know will continue to grow, whether you continue your line or other folks kind of jump in, um, you know, how do you think what what you've learned up to now really contributes to our broader understanding of issues related to well-being writ large in, in, you know, in vet med? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think one big take home is just, I'll, I'll return to a theme that I mentioned earlier. In a way, we often talk about wellness within the vet profession as though it's a monolith. And we know it's not, I mean, it's really not. And people experience it, things differently and, and unevenly. Um, we can even see that within the LGBTQ plus individuals in our sample. Um, and <clears throat> we, um, unfortunately, due to the the nature of our sample, which was 94% white, um, we didn't have the numbers to look at intersectional identities with, with race and ethnicity. But, you know, um, we I think we can be fairly confident that any layer of marginalization you add on is going to add on more stress. Um, so I think this study, I hope there are, are many other studies looking at other marginalized identities um, and continuing to look at, at LGBTQ plus folks within the vet profession. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of uh, studies looking at uh, veterinarians with disabilities and, and how that impacts their work-related climate and mental health. And, and that's just one example I'll throw out there. So I hope that, you know, we we think about the, the profession broadly, but then we need to to narrow our focus too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for <clears throat> shouting out issues around ableism. Um, this is a, 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 pet, a, a pet topic, increasingly a pet topic for me in the way that it kind of cuts across things because there are so many folks who do not have a visible disability. Yep. Um, but that disability has a huge impact, right, on their their experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that 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 
the lack of, I guess, racial diversity in, in the, the study might be disappointing, but kind of getting back to our previous, um, you know, brief touching on, um, you know, emotional burden, emotional exhausting, weathering, weathering, adding, you know, just think for listeners and viewers, okay, so person might identify as, you know, LGBTQIA, somewhere on the spectrum, um, gender identity, and then, you know, they might be a person of color. They might live in Coeur d'Alene. They might live, <laughs> yeah, I said it. <laughs> like, <laughs> they might live in Coeur d'Alene. They might, you know, they might, um, you know, be um, indigenous. And so there's um, an identity piece with that. And so just imagine, like, that it's not one thing. It's several aspects that you know, several lenses of that um, um, identity, that individual's identity that are impacting the way that they kind of move through the world. Yeah, yeah. So, Dane, any com- any comment on, yeah, I'm going to ask about it. It wasn't on the, it wasn't on the pre, <laughs> on the pre-production list because it didn't happen. Yeah. It, it hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Yeah. It's, I think the comment I would have is that this is the reality of the world that we live in. And, you know, talking about um, events that affect our community and creating a culture of inclusion and, and safety really is so important because so many more of these um, situations arise where there's a direct threat to our safety. And this is, you know, I mean, I've been a queer activist my whole life and I don't ever remember feeling um, feeling this kind of threat, which seems crazy because I, I know that, you know, that folks that have gone before me faced probably many more threats than this, but just the... The idea that, you know, as a veterinarian, if I'm traveling to give talks at different conferences, that there might be folks that come to the talks that want to, um, to you know, stir stuff up and, and be there as sort of a counter voice and that that could be a potential, um, a potential form of harassment and, you know, just trying to be prepared for those things. And I think that, that it is really you know, the idea that we've made several steps forward in the community and we're having, you know, sort of five or six years ago, things when when the Defense of Marriage Act fell and gay marriage became legal, it was really this feeling of, all right, we're, we've got, we've got this momentum and the world is finally recognizing that, that queer folks are you know, valid members of the community and we're here to contribute and, you know, you know, love is love. Right. And I think we're obviously experiencing the backlash from that. And so events like what happened in, in Idaho, unfortunately are becoming more common. You know, there was just an incident here in California where the drag queen uh, story hour got interrupted by some um, members of a white supremacist group that stuff happens and, you know, we're as a community becoming more resilient and we're here to stand up to it and continue to fight the fight and stand up for our rights. And so that's my comment is that it's out there, it's happening and yeah, we're going to keep, you know, fighting against it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I think it's, you know, one of the things that um, my team found in our, our 2012, 2013 study was um, that uh, all marginalized identities are experiencing aspects of this and, and know that like that, per- that individual might go, Oh, I'm experiencing th- it through this lens versus this lens versus this lens. But I think that, that, the big um, takeaway, one of the big takeaways from that LGBT study that we did was um, that, and I mean, we know this, the, 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 the sociological research is clear, we know so the psychology research is clear, all of these things. Where there's one-ism, like they travel in packs, <laughs> like, right? They don't, there's never just one, right? Like, oh, this is just racism. No, <laughs> if there's racism, like it brings along its friends, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, you know, ableism, all of them kind of come and party together. And, um, you know, I think that that even your, your comment on saying, you know, that the white supremacists kind of showed up um, there, it, it's not it's not surprising to me as someone kind of who, who reads the literature because, you know, they're not down with any of us. <laughs> They're just not down with any of us. And that is something that I think that we as a profession have to better recognize and really kind of push back on. Um, it, it's, you know, either you're one for all or or not. So, yes. Yeah. So, Tracy, where do you see things going next? What's on what's on your vision board? On and the docket. Where <laughs> would you say? Yeah, yeah, because I'm definitely uh, eager to hear um, what Dane would like to see um, in terms of, you know, in the more immediate future. Um, where I, I'll, I'll be excited to to present and and talk about this qualitative paper that, and I want to give a huge shout out to the first author of the paper, Sharon Cramper, who's my PhD student and did a ton of amazing work on it. Um, but but having more conversations about like what's the nitty gritty of what's actually going on in these environments. Um, I also, you know, it's shocking to think about how old these data are now. These are from 2016. They were collected actually before Trump was elected president. Like, you know, the, the environment was, was different. Um, This was also before the, um, the data were collected before the Supreme Court decision that um, <clears throat> offered workplace protection nationwide. Um, so, you know, things in some ways have gotten worse, some ways have gotten better, and, and I would just love to, to have more updated info. Um, and I would love to figure out a way to um, recruit a sample where we could explore intersectional ex- intersectionality at all, because um, we just didn't have the numbers in, in this paper. Um, or, you know, gear, uh, you know, if we're not able to get the numbers, using a qualitative lens and asking more targeted questions for the, the folks that we are able to recruit and, and you know, hear from, from those people. Um, and and then the last thing I'll throw out before I want to hear from, from Dane is, um, you know, we've highlighted that we had pretty good reach throughout the United States for the survey. I think it was 34, 35 different states, but then there are more than a dozen states from which we didn't hear from anyone. We don't know if that's because they aren't 
connected to groups like Pride BMC um, or if there just really aren't any, if those locations are so hostile to, to LGBTQ plus individuals that they're not working there, going to school there. We just don't know. But I think um, doing more outreach um, so that we can hear from everybody would be great. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that that's kind of the direction that I'm most interested in because from my personal experience, you know, as I said, I went through transition and, and have been experiencing these things sort of in the bubble, right? You know, here in California, in the Bay Area, <clears throat> um, I feel very protected um, because I'm surrounded by folks that, you know, are very like-minded. And I think that, I think there's a graphic, Tracy, that you often show with your research where there's, you know, that shows the country and there's all the gray states, which are the ones that lack information. And I think I would really like to know for to, to and, and to hear the stories of not just have the numbers, but to hear the stories of folks like me that maybe have gone through transition or contemplating transition as veterinarians in those gray states that where we don't have that data to just know, you know, what is your experience there? And is there a way as a community we can, we can help those folks? Cause I, I just from experience, like going to uh, various veterinary conferences and having town halls and, and hearing from folks in the audience that, you know, maybe work in, in a state that doesn't have a lot of trans representation in, in the veterinary community and sort of what it was, what challenges they're facing. So I think having that, that research would be really valuable. I think just from a personal level, I'm very curious about, you know, because of the work that I do as uh, a marine mammal veterinarian, I'm very curious about this, this sort of overlays, not only between our health as individuals, is, you know, in society, but also what are the impacts of of marginalization and stress and poor well-being on the environment. Like, how does that fit into the environment as a whole? So sort of taking this one health approach. So it's kind of a bigger picture, sort of maybe getting more expanded than drilling down necessarily. But just from a personal standpoint, I would love to see um, that kind of research happening uh, for just telling us what what's happening in our into our world at large so yeah that's some really good stuff and i hope to see it i hope that i have an opportunity at some point to participate um and and some of this uh this ongoing work it's really really important and i think it is um uh, such an important part of the larger discussions around well-being i have always said that we have to look at, you know, um, in any of these types of things where you're looking for systems change, you really need to understand what's going on with the folks with marginalized identities. If you can fix that, the rest is easy, right? The rest is easy at the systems level. And so um, I really encourage our, our watchers and listeners to um, seek out this research. We'll certainly have some links. Um, visit the Pride VMC website. We will also be including links to um, the Gender Identity Bill of Rights, but also, and also the Williams Institute, which is a great, I cannot understate <laughs> 
like or overstate just what a wonderful resource the Williams Institute is. I dropped a link in the live stream tra- chat, but we will include that in the show notes as well. So any parting words, my friends and colleagues? Um, I, I just want to, again, thank all of the, the people who helped make our research project possible. I, I was blown away by the numbers that we were able to get for a, a fairly, um, you know, specific population. Uh, the, the fact that we had over 400 people um, participate in our survey, we had a raffle, but it wasn't a ton of money for the amount of time and, and labor it took to, to answer really difficult questions. So super grateful to everyone who participated. And of course, um, to all of, of my co-authors and people at Pride BMC for being so supportive of the research. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Really, I, I think just the fact that this research is even being done and these questions are being asked to me is just phenomenal because, you know, 30 years, I guess, has it been 30 years? I guess it's been a while ago since I was in vet school. Um, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, uh, you know, this these kinds of questions, I didn't even feel safe being out. So the fact that that these kinds of questions are being asked and this, these, this research, research is being done is just really speaks volumes to how far we've come. Um, you know, obviously we still have a long way to go. Um, but I think that really just being able to continue this and being able to, to ask and, and hopefully answer some of these questions about how can we create a more supportive environment so that we thrive, not only as individuals, but as, as veterinarians, because that's really what our profession is all about. And I think that you know, having individuals participating in the profession that are their authentic selves and can be supported is just so important. So I really appreciate it. And thank you, Tracy, for all the work that you've done. And thank you, Lisa, for having us here to, to talk about it today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, thank you both. Uh, this has been another episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Dane and Tracy, thank you for joining me. I really, really appreciated this discussion. Um, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook. Um, the address on Facebook is AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Um, and uh, stay tuned. We've got some new shows coming up. Uh, we've got several new shows right um, in pre-production right now. So um, it looks like I won't be taking time off for the summer and it's really, really exciting. We got some good stuff. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.